0: I discovered during the week that uh, I'm becoming like my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother's in her 90s. Uh, and that's because I thought, yeah, I spoke on Revelation 1 to 3 a couple of years ago. And so I'll start on Revelation 4 and 5. Then I look back through uh, my sort of notes and I discovered in 2008 on the then church members conference, I spoke on Revelation 1 to 3. And I, uh, I said in those, and yeah, we'll look at Revelation 4 and 5 in a couple of years. Uh, It's now 2013, but there you go. This is the longest talk series in history, and who knows when I'll get to 6 to 22. Uh, But now we're picking it up again. The Book of Revelation scares a lot of people uh, with its vivid picture language and apocalyptic style. Uh, It it does this strange splitting of people uh, where whenever you put out a thing where you ask people, what should we preach on, do you have questions? About 40 come in and say, preach on Revelation. You know, because like it has this, this sort of uh, uh, way of gripping us and we're, we're sort of captivated by it a little bit, while other people are scared of it uh, with all that apocalyptic language and all that sort of thing. Uh, and it's really sad in many ways that sometimes people don't teach on Revelation because it has sometimes split churches apart. Uh, people's divergent understandings of this book have split churches. Uh, so some people know it's God's word, but they sort of wish it wasn't there. Uh, That's sort of the way some people stick, you know, they sort of think, I'll stick to the safer ground of the Gospels and, and Paul's letters. But that's sad, and especially if it meant we never looked at these two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5. I love these chapters because they give us an insight into, I think, the glory of God. Because what they do is they give us a glimpse into the throne room of God in heaven. That's what they do. They give us that glimpse. So let's look at it together. Thanks, Mark, for reading it out. It's not an easy passage to, uh, to read, that one. So I'll just open my Bible to Revelation 4 as well. If you look there in verse 1, it's the Apostle John speaking. He's in prison. He's on the island of Patmos. Uh, he's already had an incredible vision of Jesus back in chapter 1, full of all sorts of crazy symbolism and images he's had given to him. The seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. And now in chapter 4, a voice like a trumpet invites him through an open door into the heavens. Uh, Sam, our eldest son, started learning the trumpet about three weeks ago. So a voice to a trumpet, like a trumpet at the moment sounds a lot like rawr, rawr, to me. But <laughs> it, it's a more rich sound than that, I think, that we're meant to image anyway. And the voice says, look there, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, The future uh, and the destiny of humanity, and especially of God's people, in fact, of all of history, is to be played out for John, like a movie, uh, is what's being told to him here. And at many points, it's going to be like a horror movie. If you read from uh, Revelation 6 right through to Revelation 22, at many points, it's a horror movie. It's not going to be pretty. So I think it's sort of like before that happens, before I give you these visions, John, I'm going to give you a glimpse of heaven. I'm going to give you a glimpse of where it finishes, if you like, a glimpse of the glory of God. I think to make him realise that whatever happens, God is in control and God is glorious. If you look there at verse 2, it says that he was in the spirit. We're not told what that means, uh, but, I, but it seems that John knew that what he was seeing was not just a dream. Uh, what he was seeing was not just the result of the bad falafel at, at lunchtime. Uh, what he was seeing was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants us to know. So here he is. He's taken by the Spirit up into the heavens, and this is what he sees. Now, you'll notice on your outline, if you've got your outline there, I've given you a box to try and draw it. As we go here to try and draw what we see, and I need a couple of volunteers who love using extra jumbo crayons. Sophie, do you want to be my volunteer? No? I, either Sophie. Actually, there's two Sophies here. Does someone near the front want to be my volunteer who loves drawing? It, they don't have to. They don't have to love crayons. They can be older. If we got a drawer, who someone, volunteer someone you know who's good at art? Uh, Louis. <laughs> There you go, Louisa. There you go. But she needs an assistant. Yes. So whoever whoever was the person who first said Louisa, I think it was Nell. <laughs> Rajana. there you go. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to try and draw this. We'll have to sort of turn it a bit straight on so that people over here can see. We're going to draw this as we look at it. So what's the first thing there? At the centre is a throne. So that's the first thing. So do it in your book. At the centre is a throne. Clearly that's where God sits to rule over all of creation, the heavens and the earth. But do you notice how John doesn't even try, or perhaps even better, he doesn't dare to try, to describe God. So don't put God on the throne yet, because what he says is, look there, the best he can do is is say, he looked like jasper and carnelian stones. Have a go at that. Uh, Jasper and Carnelian stone with a rainbow that looked like an emerald around him. Try that one. Any ideas on Jasper? Just do your best. Jasper and Carnelian stone with a rainbow that looked like an emerald around him. Uh, Maybe, just maybe, that's sending us back to Noah. I think more than maybe it probably is. It's a reminder to us that this is the God who keeps his promises. Remember how the rainbow reminds us that God keeps his word. Then around the throne in a circle facing towards God, he says there are 24 other thrones (laughs) with 24 elders sitting on them. Just do your best, ladies. It's all right. Uh, So 24 thrones with 24 elders, and I think that's showing the full people of God from both Old and New Testaments. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 uh, sons, If you remember from the book of Genesis and the 12 apostles seated together around the throne of God, worshipping God. But more important than that is that they are dressed in white and they wear crowns on their heads. I think what we're meant to see there is that they are pure, that they've been washed clean by, by the blood of Jesus. That's why they're dressed in white. And the crowns, well, they show that they've won the battle. They show that they've been victorious. They've persevered in the faith against all opposition. They've kept trusting God, so now they sit with him in the heavenly throne room. Uh, So that's the start. How are we going on our picture? It's looking great. Look at that. But it's not just a beautiful picture. It's going to get harder still. Uh, It's not all Jasper, Carnelian and rainbows. I don't even know what Jasper and Carnelian look like, but it's a scary picture too, if you look there. He talks about how there's thunder and there's lightning coming from the throne. Uh, and if you remember, thunder and lightning are associated with when God came on Mount Sinai with the presence of God. But also I think it's meant to remind us or make us realise that the God who sits on the throne is the God of judgement. It's the God who judges. This keeps being more to the picture. Keep going ladies. There's the seven fiery torches. They represent the perfect and complete Holy Spirit. And then it says there is something... Like, I hope you guys are all drawing this on your books, not just laughing at them. Come on. I'll check later. You'll get a pass mark. Yes. Then it says there is something like a sea of glass. Uh, it's hard when they, it's not even it is a sea of glass. It's something like a sea of glass. Later in Revelation, the sea is the place of evil. Uh, the sea is the centre of evil and, and the lake is the place of punishment. And we know that often in the Bible, to be cast into the stormy sea is to be under the judgment of God. So you think of Jonah in in your Old Testament. You think of, do you know that story where Jesus casts the the evil spirits into the pigs? And then what happens? The pigs run off down and are killed in the Sea of Galilee with the demons inside them. But here in heaven, the sea isn't turbulent. The sea isn't a place of judgment. It says the sea is like glass. It looks like crystal. It's peaceful and still. So as John was giving us that picture and as you're watching these guys draw this, I was hoping we'd get a worse artist than Louisa because it's actually looking quite good there. And her assistant. Thanks, Charlie. Yes. Your your, your treasure's in heaven. Uh, But as we do it, the thing you find is it's actually impossible to draw, isn't it? It's sort of just a mess. You you can't draw this. Uh, during the week, well actually a couple of weeks ago, I sat down and I tried to draw it. And after about twenty pieces of paper had been thrown at my bin, you, you know, scrambled up and thrown, I did the next best thing. Ladies, you can sit down now and leave us with this remnant of your uh, your artistic endeavours. <laughs> I tried to draw it, but I couldn't make it make sense visually. It was just sort of this this mash of of images and and ideas. So I did the next thing. I went to Google Images, and I typed in Revelation 4 images. And the first one, this is the one that came up. There you go. I think Louisa's and Jana's is better, isn't it? But anyway, but you can see it doesn't quite capture it, does it? It's a good attempt, but it doesn't quite capture it. So then another one came up. This one was just a bit lame. I thought... If that's the throne room of God, then, I mean, and then when the next one came up, a picture of Lara Croft Tomb Raider, uh, raider I, I thought, well, I'm really not on a winner here. So I, I don't know why that came up. But you see, that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, we probably can take off the picture of Lara Croft Tomb Raider. It's probably not that edifying, actually. But, uh, but that's the thing, isn't it? I think this isn't meant to be a literal description that you can paint a picture of. Uh, John is trying to capture in words something that is uncapturable, if that's a word. Uh, He's trying to capture how amazing, how awesome, how indescribable, how glorious it is to stand in the heavenly throne room before the God of the universe. See, the right response is less to picture the detail and more to get the vibe, with apologies to Dennis DeNuto at, at that point. It's the vibe, it's Mabo. Well, here, the vibe is, it's glorious. It's wonderful. It's indescribable. But let's go on. Uh, And if you turn your page in your outline, it gets even harder to picture the next bit because now we come to the four beasts. So again, uh, try to picture it. Four living creatures, one like a lion. It's not a lion, it's like a lion, perhaps symbolizing nobility and kingship perhaps the second it says is like a calf or better a, a young ox uh, perhaps symbolizing strength the, the third is like a man perhaps the wisest and most intelligent of the animals in theory at least the fourth like an eagle perhaps representing the greatest of the beasts of the air, or perhaps those four animals are meant to represent the four different realms of the creation of the, of, of the animals, humanity, the wild, the sky, and the tame beasts. And do you notice he has to say that these things are like each of these animals? Uh, it, it's not that these were a man and a lion and an eagle and an ox. They're like that. Again, my Google search couldn't give me anything very helpful. Here are some attempts from uh, Google Images. That's of the eagle. Well, I don't think it quite captures it. It was probably the best I could find. What's the next one we had there? there? There they are, but they don't even bother trying to really capture them. They just sort of say, well, let's have heads of those four animals. Uh, and then my next one was my favourite. It was from the Lego Bible. <laughs> and that's the lion. But it hardly instills fear and awe in you. Uh, we can leave that one up just to remind us of what's going on. But they don't get it, do they? And they don't get it because no lion, no ox, no man, no eagle we've ever seen is covered with eyes on front and back. Uh, You can't even make that work on an animal. Uh, And no lion or ox or man or eagle we've ever seen has six wings, especially with eyes on the outside and the inside of each of the six wings. And I think the eyes, by the way, are sort of signifying their level of insight, their level of discernment and knowledge. But again, what is important, I think, is what they are doing. That's what's important. These four powerful, glorious, insightful sort of representatives of God's created order, what do they do? Look at verse 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy Holy, holy, Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. And this is where we come to our point. We've sort of had a a bit of fun, but now this is where we come to the point. What do they do? They glorify God day and night. That's what they do. And what are the things they focus on that make God worthy of glory? Well, their focus is what you might call the who he is of God. That's what they focus on. So look there, I've put three headings on your outline. The first is God is holy. That's why they glorify. What does that mean? It means that God is separate from all other things. He alone is God. There is no other. Uh, in one sense, that captures everything. You don't need to say anything else about the glory of God. He is separate because he alone is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving. But most of all, God's holiness refers to his purity. That's what it's on. In him there is no sin. In him alone there is no evil. He is pure in every way. So that's the first part of who he is. God is holy. The second thing there they focus on is that God is the almighty. What does that mean? If I can stretch you a bit by using some big words at this point, uh, it's funny, some of people turn off when you use big words, uh, but surely it's worth stretching our mind a little to know God better, I think. Some people become experts in their work fields while remaining babies in terms of their Christian knowledge. Uh, you know, their Christian knowledge of God stays at a Sunday school level. A simple faith is all you need to save, but there is nothing pious about keeping your faith simple. Uh, I want to challenge you here, so part of that is learning these big words, but more importantly, what they mean. So what does it mean that God is almighty? Well, it means he is sovereign, first of all. Uh, He rules the world, and nothing happens in this world that God does not stand behind. That's the first thing. Uh, You might have heard people say that God is omnipotent. Again, a big word, it means he is all-powerful. I think back to that moment in Genesis 18 when God tells Sarah and Abraham, I'm going to give you a baby. I'm going to give you a son. And they're very elderly in age. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. And then what does God say? He says, is anything impossible for the Lord? And he doesn't even bother answering his question. He just says, is anything impossible for the Lord? Because what's the answer? No, he is omnipotent, all-powerful. We also talk about the omniscience of God. That means he is all-knowing. There is nothing that happens that he does not know about because he sees everything, which, by the way, should fill sinners like us with dread. He sees everything. He knows everything, even the thoughts of our hearts. And by his will, everything happens. That's just something of what it means that God is Almighty. I'm mean, only scratching the surface. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. Thirdly, there God is eternal. What, is, what do they say there? The beast. They say who was, who is, and who is coming. See, God was not created. I watched Q and A a few weeks ago, and uh, and the cos. What was the, what was the title of that man on Q and A for those who watched it? A cosmologist. Is that right, Paddy? Yeah, I don't even know what a cosmologist is, but anyway. He, he had to come up with, a, he said, the, the world created and it came out of nothing because nothing's not really anything, but it is something. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you see, God was not created. God has always been. There has never been a time when God was not and he always will be. God does not change. He was the same yesterday. He is the same today and he will be the same tomorrow. If you want the big word again, he is immutable. Uh, up on the screen will come, a couple, will come up a couple of verses. Uh, Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, James 1.17, he does not change like shifting shadows. I think, by the way, uh, this is why we struggle so much to respect our politicians these days. Because they are not immutable. Uh, now, we shouldn't expect them to be immutable by God, but I don't think it's so much that they don't keep their word. It's that they change their opinions according to the polls. I think that's why we've reached this point where so few people respect our politicians. I wonder if people don't just wish they were a bit more immutable. Even if you don't agree with me, at least stick to what you believe instead of changing with whatever the opinions of everyone around you. Well, God is immutable. He does not change his view on things because society changes. He does not change his view on what is right and wrong Because our world has changed its view on what is right and wrong. And because God doesn't change, that means he is totally consistent. He is trustworthy. If he says it, it happens. We never have to fear that God will renege on his promises. So God is holy. God is almighty. And God is eternal. And all of those things added up together... They add up to what we call the glory of God. He is holy. He is almighty. He is eternal. Sometimes when you're teaching kids uh, in Sunday school, you create a healthy competition amongst them. I say healthy. It's often unhealthy. I've seen it at Kids Plus, where kids want to outshine the others in expressing their love for Jesus. Uh, And it's nice when peer pressure is in that direction rather than towards smoking, drinking and drugs. But anyway... But I love what happens next here in Revelation 4. It's like this healthy competition in heaven. Uh, Because if the living creatures represent all of creation, the 24 elders represent God's people, and they don't want to be outdone. Look from verse 9. It says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne. It's like sort of, if you're doing it, we're doing it too. And they worship the one who lives forever and cast their crowns before the throne. I love that image. Uh, they fall down and they cast off their crowns before the throne of God. There used to be a Christian band called Casting Crowns, didn't they? I look at the musicians over here. Are they still around? There you go. It's a great name because the key first step of glorifying God is to cast off our own crowns. The key first step of glorifying God is to humble myself. That's the first step. To recognize I'm not the king. I have no glory. I have nothing to boast about before God. God alone is glorious. And if the beasts focused on the who of God, the elders focused on what God has done. Just look uh, at verse 11. They say, Our Lord and God, You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and because of your will they exist and were created. What are they glorifying God for? His work of creation. That's what they're glorifying for. When we look at the universe, when we look at the world around us, the correct response is to cast off our crown and give glory to God. The psalmists know this. If you want to see this, just read the psalms. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. I think it's on our next slide. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Uh, Or Nehemiah in chapter 9, verse 6. It's going to come up in a second. It's on your outline as well. You alone are Yahweh. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it. The seas and all that is in them, you give life to all of them, and the heavenly host worships you. See, the fact that God created all of this, walk outside today and look at those blue skies. God created that. And I'm very thankful for it, as is Brendan, who's organising the afternoon activities. But God created all of this out of nothing, and that means he is glorious, and he is worthy of our glorification. But you notice he didn't just create it and let it go. It's not just that he made it that makes him glorious. Look there in verse 11. It's by God's will that things continue to exist. God sustains all of creation. Everyone just put your pen up above your head like this. I don't want you to think like you're at the Hillsong Conference or something, but that's all right. The, uh, put your hand up there, then drop your pen, but not on your head. Why did that happen? Why did that pen drop? Because you let it go. Thanks, David. Someone here could explain to me it's the laws of physics. There's something that I've forgotten from year 12 where E equals something by something squared by something or something like that. You see, the only reasons the laws of science work is because God is behind them. If God decided that the pen would stay in the air, he could change the laws of physics and make it stay in the air. The only reason the bird, or the plane for that matter, stays up in the air, yes, there's science on one hand, but the only reason in the end is because God made it that way. That's the way it works. God wills it. The trees grow because God wills it. The flowers open because God wills it. When we look at the creation, we should give credit where credit is due. We should declare that God is worthy of all glory, all praise, and all honour. Have you noticed how increasingly God is not given the glory he deserves for his creation? Uh, People want to replace the glory of God with the beauty of science. Have you noticed that? I was on that Q&A program again a couple of weeks ago. It only gets me angry watching the show. I don't know why I do it. Anyway... uh, (laughs) They've replaced, people replaced the glory of God with the beauty of science. The discipline of science only grew out of the discipline of theology. That's just history. The only reason that people came up with the idea of science is because they thought there is a God who gives order to the creation. The very basis of science is that God created an orderly world. Science is only beautiful in so much as it tries to capture the glory of God shown in his creation. It's even more subtle than that, by the way, that move to take God's glory away. Listen to what they write on my water bottle. I noticed this as I was having a drink of water before. It says, this is uh, new, pure spring water. Water, it's not actually, it's out of my tap, but the bottle is new. <laughs> pure spring water. water sourced from pristine Australian springs... Pure, with a natural balance of minerals, the way Mother Nature intended. We know it's trivial, but Mother Nature didn't intend anything. <laughs> God intended everything. And the thing is, no one at New Pure Beverages actually believes in Mother Nature. Because no one, does anyone believe in Mother Nature? Probably some pagan religion, anyway. Anyway. You see, it's all part of humanity's desire to take God's glory away from him. That's what it is. And while that's, a, that's you know, just a small thing, that's what it is. See, by referring to good old harmless mother nature who no one believes in, well, then we don't have to admit that it's God who made it all and it's God who put it there and it's God who deserves the glory. See, Satan uses myths like that to steal God's glory. As I say, that's a petty thing, but this isn't. See, when we talk about the beauty of the world, let's talk about the creation. Talk about the creation, because it's not an accident, and God deserves the glory. Better still, talk about the creator. Talk about our God. He created it. He sustains it. So he deserves the credit for it. I'm going to pause there and we're going to come back to chapter 5 after morning tea. Uh, But just as we close, the last thing there on your outline, I just want us to come up with our preliminary answer from Revelation 4 to the question we started with. How do we glorify God? This is a picture of heaven. This is our future. We will join with the elders one day. So how do we glorify God? You, you might say we glorify God by our godliness of life, by living godly, repented lives. And that's true. That's true. Uh, you might say it's by singing and by our music. We're going to do it in a minute. Uh, we glorify God by joining together in song. And, that, and that's true. Uh, You might say it's by our acts of service. We glorify God by serving others in the world, and that's true as well. But it's not primarily any of those things. See, fundamentally, we glorify God by knowing the truth about him and declaring it to others. That's how we glorify God. We glorify God by declaring who he is to the world. He is almighty. He is holy. He is eternal. And we glorify God by declaring what he has done and what he is doing in the world. See, our godliness of life only brings glory to God if people know the God we are living to serve. Our music only glorifies God if people know, mainly through the words we sing, about the God we glorify. Our acts of service only glorify God if people know the God who we are serving, and why we are serving him. Most fundamentally, Revelation 4 reminds us that we glorify God by declaring to one another and to the world who he is and what he has done. And that is why he made us. Uh, Our prayer to close is going to be in song as we sing that God is worthy of all praise. And then we're going to be seeing a couple of videos about some people who are glorifying God.